Hello and welcome to H216. My name is Mr. Belanti. I'm putting this audio file together to allow individuals an opportunity to take a self-guided tour, looking at some of the various military and historical memorabilia that I've collected from the time period of the Second World War. As you walk through the door, directly on the right-hand side, you're going to see a small desk that has a variety of Italian, but mostly Nazi items on top of it. Uh, let's start off with the uniform. That is an Italian officer's uniform from the Engineer Corps. You can see he has his overseas cap on, as well as his Sam Brown belt. Underneath it are two Time magazines from the 1930s. Uh, the one that's closest to the uniform shows Adolf Hitler. That's the first time Hitler has been put on top of a magazine in the United States. Uh, next to it is one of Mussolini, of course, Mussolini being the fascist dictator of Hitler's ally, Italy. Uh, directly underneath those magazines, you're going to notice a, a swastika flag that was a bring back from the war. A lot of these items are from American soldiers who eventually pickpocketed or took whether it was from people who were alive or uh, directly after the war or off of dead bodies, uh, items that um, they thought were collectible. I think there's an old adage for American uh, military uh, men. The adage goes something like this, and this one dates back to the First World War. The English fight for glory, the French fight for honor, but the Americans, the Americans fight for souvenirs. And that's what much of this is, bringing back things from the war. Um, on top of the flag, you see Hitler's Mein Kampf. That is an edition of 1939. That was the first time that Mein Kampf was completely translated in English. And the man who translated it, if I'm not mistaken, was an English Jew who wanted the English-speaking populations, let's say even here in the United States, to have the opportunity to read Mein Kampf specifically so they could see Hitler's fanaticism and his extreme anti-Semitism. Right, it's one thing when you hear it, being stated in the news or you read it in a newspaper, but the uh, the author wanted the American as well as British public to have the opportunity to read it directly to see how fanatic and how crazy Hitler was and how anti-Jewish he was. Behind Hitler's Mein Kampf, you have a variety of medals from the Second World War, the period of the Second World War. Let's start at the top left, the one with the red uh, ribbon with the white and black stripes to either side. That is a medal that was issued in 1936 for the taking of Austria. As you guys might have, hopefully have, had an opportunity to learn about the appeasement period of World War II. Before the war started in 1939, Hitler, Mussolini, and even Japan started acquiring territories dating back to the 1930s. And the international world did little to nothing to stop that from taking place. But specifically in Europe, when Hitler took Austria, his birthplace in 1936, France was supposed to stop it, supposed to declare war. That was what was written in the Treaty of Versailles that ended the First World War. But France did nothing, and that only bolstered Hitler to take more gambles. The next gamble is directly to the right of that medal. That is the medal with the ribbon that has a red stripe in the middle, but the black stripes on the outside. That is the medal that was issued for the taking of the Sudetenland in 1938. After Hitler took Austria, he demanded that the Sudeten Germans be absorbed into Germany. If he did not get the Sudeten Germans, then he would threaten war. And England, France, and Italy, and Germany all went to Munich in what became known as the Munich Conference and signed over the Sudetenland to Germany. The reason why they signed it over is that Hitler threatened war. And one of the things that scared France and England to their core was the threat of another world war. Remember, we're, we're not even 20 years shy 
of the end of the First World War. And 20 years, there's still a lot of people in England and France across the world that remembers, remember the horrors of the First World War and don't want to repeat that. Uh, directly next to it is a party badge, um, the swastika, the circular medal that's right there. That is the badge that you would receive when you became an official member of the Nazi party. Next to that is an Iron Cross second class. It's right in the middle, top middle of the display. Uh, underneath that are probably the three that I, I find the most fascinating because of, it really talks to the time period as well as to Nazism and fascism in general. Those are three crosses. The one in the middle is a gold cross. The one on the left is a silver, and the other one to the right is a bronze cross. These are known as the Mutterkreuz, or the Mother Cross. One of the elements of fascism was to promote gender, uh, conservative gender views. Uh, men were supposed to be militaristic. They were supposed to be manly, an epitome of machismo. And women, kind of in a you know, reduced role, were to be basically mothers and create babies. That, that was really their role. And this is also true of Italy. And we'll, we'll talk about one of the ribbons for the Italians in just a moment. But if you had upwards of seven or more children, the Nazis in a propaganda campaign would give you a gold cross. And you, as a you know, woman of, of Nazism, uh, could go around and show off that you've contributed your children to the Reich, to the empire. You know, boys are going to go on to join the military and girls will do exactly what their mother was doing and have children. If you had uh, between, I believe it's five to six, or four to six, you would get the silver medal, and you had upwards of four, you would get the bronze medal. And that, like I said, became an open competition between women to show off their fanaticism as well for Nazism. To the bottom right-hand side, that is a Hitler Youth badge, uh, um, achievement badge. So if you were, for example, competing in archery or shooting target practice, maybe you were running the mile, and you were able to hit a mark or graduate in that field or achieve some sort of uh, passing of your shooting or your archery skills, then you would receive kind of a graduation pin. North of those or just above those, the one with the red background with the white and black stripes in the middle, that is what the Nazis or the, the Germans even today call the frozen meat medal. That is the medal that was issued to soldiers who were in the Operation Barbarossa campaign, the invasion of Russia. And of course, it's known as the frozen meat medal because Germans were freezing to death. They were froze to death outside of Moscow in the first campaign and eventually froze out in places like Stalingrad in the second campaign. Towards the extreme right, there you have the Western Wall medal. Uh, it was well known that the French created the Maginot Line to protect from a future German invasion, but the Nazis also built their own line, which was called the West Wall. Uh, in the 1930s to protect themselves from a future invasion. Uh, and then just north of the bronze mother cross, there is a diamond uh, swastika right there. That is a pin that you would receive if you were a member of the Hitler Youth. Next to that display, you're going to see a couple of medals for the Italians. The one in blue and black, that is for the invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. The two medals directly underneath that are for the fascist youth party, the Badilla in Italy. Uh, one of them shows the M from Mussolini and the fascio symbol, the fascist symbol uh, underneath it, kind of an M and an, uh, and an I or a stick underneath it. And the one above that has Hitler, uh, excuse me, Mussolini's face on it. And much like we saw about the Nazi crosses, about the mothers having multiple children, the Italians also had one. The one with the long ribbon 
that looks to be kind of a, a dirty gray or an off-white with the blue stripes. That is called La Medaglia delle Famiglie Numerosi, or the Medal of the Numerous Families, or the families that are of large number. Every ribbon that you have on there denotes a child that was born to that family. So just like the Nazis were trying to promote women to be baby factories, fascism, Italian fascism, or Nazism being German fascism, uh, promoted the same ideology. In the middle is a workbook. Everybody in Germany uh, had and needed a workbook. It was a way to give an idea to the state where you worked, as well as a, kind of a punch card of how much uh, time you spent from place to place and where you've worked. It also allowed the government to keep an eye on you and know that you were actually a contributing member of society. And then next to that is a soldier's uh, singing book. So the soldiers would also practice their singing skills. And if you were to translate some of the um, some of the songs in that book, they are viciously anti-Semitic. Behind that display is a book entitled Adolf Hitler, uh, The Giver of Life to the People of Germany. And it was a propaganda book that was made in 1936. It was basically written by all of Hitler's friends, from Goering to Goebbels. Um, uh, they all contributed their view of Hitler. And uh, the chapters are something like Hitler, the giver of life, Hitler, the, the giver of work, Hitler, the giver of children, Hitler, the basically your life depends, uh, has depended and has been given to you by one man that you should love and appreciate and just a propaganda campaign. And then behind the two displays where the medals are, that is a bring back from the war that was hanging up in a kitchen in Munich. An American soldier took it off the wall and put it in his haversack in his backpack and took home during the war. And it's a, um, I believe it is a, uh, a bronze plate of Hitler on the, on a, uh, a backing of, of wood. And I think some sort of uh, material that at that point, if we move on a little bit further down, uh, past the table and past the trash can, you're going to notice uh, the Japanese section of this little mini tour. In front of you stands a Japanese soldier dressed in his winter outfit. This would be what the Japanese would have probably have fought in in places like Manchuria, China uh, during the Second World War and the period before 1939, 1931, for example, the taking of Manchuria. And in 1933-35 uh, with the taking of Eastern China. Uh, full wool outfit. Underneath the soldier's left arm is his bread bag. He has a backpack on that is known as being the octopus because it has a variety of ties on it. And on the section behind his left hand is the Japanese, uh, two-part Japanese shovel that was used. Uh, the shovel was kind of interesting. It had two holes in the middle of it. And Japanese soldiers could use that not only to shovel, but if they were behind a trench and they needed to peek out towards the enemy, the two holes in it, they could cover their face and then the two holes would allow them to see off in the distance. And if somebody shot at them, then the metal was there to protect them, in theory. Um, down towards the right-hand arm, you're going to see a bag that has some Japanese kenji written on it. That is a little goodie bag. Uh, the bag itself was issued by the military, and then soldiers would give that to the families, and the families might put little snacks or well wishes inside the bag for the, the uh, Japanese soldiers to take with them. He has his canteen, um, and then towards the bottom here in front of the display, there are a couple of his shoes. Those are original to the time period. Um, they are heavy. If you have a chance to pick them up and feel the leather, they are quite heavy. Uh, they are kind of in a 
a poor state, but when I first got them, they were even worse, but I was able to kind of wash them and clean them and kind of bring them back to a little bit of more pliability in the leather. And then next to that, there you have the Japanese helmet. If you'd like to pick it up and try it on, please, please do. Moving on next, this is what a Japanese soldier would have worn in his summertime, probably in a lot of the tropical areas, mostly of this is what the Japanese would be wearing when the Americans would invade places like Pelilu, um, Iwo Jima, for example, uh, Okinawa, and places along the Gilbert Islands, the Marshall Islands during their island hopping campaign. Um, the soldier has a tunic on. If you notice underneath the armpits, it actually has areas that will allow for the body to be cooled down, seeing that you're on tropical islands and it's probably very humid. Um, if you notice around the soldier's neck, there is a little bag. It's a kind of a forest green bag. And inside are little well wishes and prayers from different Japanese Buddhist temples. Uh, soldiers would go to Buddhist temples and they pick up these little prayers and keep them around there themselves on their necks and on their person as little good luck charms. If you look down towards the waist and open up the tunic and the shirt of the soldier, you're going to notice a 1000 knot belt. Just like the goodie bag and the well wishes of the Buddhist temples, this was also another good luck charm that Japanese soldiers were issued. A wife, girlfriend, mother, sister uh, would go around town and take a piece of white silk and red um, ribbon or red um, thread and then have different women of the village knot 100 little knots or 1,000 excuse me little knots inside of that sometimes they were in decorations and designs sometimes they might design like some sort of a tiger on the print or some of them were just straight knots um, up and down and if you put your finger on it you can actually feel the knots within the um, within the white silk and every one of those knots was supposed to be a good luck um, wish. So 1,000 good luck uh, wishes to the soldier who was going off to war. Another way of connecting with the soldiers and also another campaign of, of propaganda. But this is nothing new. A lot of Japanese soldiers uh, were getting items like this from their, their families even before the Second World War. At the bottom of the display underneath the shorts, there you're going to see what the Japanese soldiers would be wearing if they transition to a more wet environment, especially on the beaches. Instead of wearing the leather shoes that you saw previous, they're going to have some sort of uh, a combo of rubber and this uh, kind of nylon material to help with their, their feet in the uh, wet conditions. Next to the shoes are two grenades. They are clay grenades. You know, of course, the beginning of the war, when the Japanese were being more successful, their grenades were made of metals. But as the Japanese are losing the war to the United States, they need to reserve as much metal for their airplanes or for their ships or for their uh, shells and for their bullets, for their weapons. And so metal is on the decrease. So if the Japanese are going to be successful, they have to go back to their home industries. And one of their home industries that they were good at, of course, is pottery. And so they would make little balls that had some sort of um, explosive on the inside and it had like a flint cap that you would strike and then you throw the grenade and when the flame or the part that you struck would hit the uh, explosive on the inside then it would shatter and explode behind that you have a japanese magazine that was issued to soldiers during the war that shows a couple of soldiers that are kind of towards the ground ready to jump up perhaps and do some sort of a, a charge with their bayonets drawn behind the magazine is another hata or a flag issued to a japanese soldier this was really typical of the time period for businesses to give out 
um, flags like this. Um, so your employer, let's say you were going to join the army and your employer wanted to participate in the propaganda and show that he or she was going to be giving you a well wish off into war, your uh, employer, your boss would purchase a flag like this and then have your name written on it. And the soldier's name is in the large Kenji. And if you kind of follow the flag towards the bottom, there is the owner's store and his name on it. Uh, and this would fly outside of in cities. So everybody in the city could say, wow, you know, Mr. Uh, So-and-so uh, has a great patriotic heart because he is sending off this young man and he wants to show everybody in the town that he is wishing this young man well. Uh, on top of that flag, you have uh, a jacket or a coat that goes along with the winter uniform. And then on top of that, you actually have a backpack that was a little bit easier to use than the octopus that you saw in the Winter Soldier. It was just a, a wrap a wrap around. It had two compartments, one large for your jacket and much more of your items that you were carrying along. And on the backside, you had the location where you had your mess kit for, uh, for food. And it would go over your shoulder and underneath one of your arms and tie across your chest. And it made it a lot easier to maneuver and to carry uh, for short trips um, versus that of the octopus. Continuing on, next to the table that has the Japanese items, you're going to see a soldier's uniform, an infantry uniform from the Soviet Union. The shovel is original to the time period. The belt is original to the time period. The cap is as well. The pants are a reproduction, um, but even the... Uh, the ammunition container, the, the white one that's underneath the right arm of the soldier is original to the time period. Uh, that would be for a machine gun that had a clip uh, of a round clip on it that was really famous. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately. Um, but even the, the backpack is of the, the time period. That one is known as a Turkish uh, backpack. It's more of a haversack. It's a sack that has just two uh, bands on it. And the, the ones that go around your shoulders, you tie up at the top of the sack to cut it off and then you just put it on your back. It's kind of a ingenious, easy application for, um, for the Russian soldiers and then even the Turkish soldiers who developed that. Continuing on, we have the, uh, a table that has a lot of items from the United States as well as some other nations including England as well as Russia. Uh, let's start off with the flag in the background. If you notice or count the amount of stars on here, this is a U.S. 48 star flag. Remember that when the Second World War broke out, the United States only had 48 states in it. Alaska and Hawaii were not part uh, of the United States as noted states. So we had 48 states at the time period. Um, directly underneath that, you have a couple of Yank magazines. These were much like you saw earlier with the Japanese magazines that were issued to Japanese soldiers. These are... Um, magazines that were issued to the Yankees, the uh, U.S. Army, uh, and they had them, of course, in the Pacific, and they had them in the European theaters as well. In front of that, you see a display case of a variety of medals. These medals are from uh, different areas. At the very top left-hand corner, you have the British Victory Medal, um, as well as, uh, I'm sorry, uh, British Campaign Star. That's from 1939 to 1945. So any soldier who fought in any campaign or any battle during the Second World War. If you were a British soldier, you earned that star. The next one is the Italian star. So if you were a part of the invasion of Sicily or the invasion of Italy or in Italy at any point during the war and you served in a military capacity, you earned that. 
Across the top, you have two medals that were issued to both American and Filipino soldiers for the liberation of the Philippine Islands. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese also attacked the Philippine Islands, which was an American possession, colonial possession at the time period, and when eventually the Americans liberated the Philippine Islands. Filipino soldiers who fought, as well as American soldiers who fought, earned those medals. Continuing across the top, you have the WAC medal, the Women's Auxiliary Corps. Uh, that was issued to any woman who was part of the, uh, the military campaign. Uh, the WAC did not exist before 1941. Um, in 1942, uh, it was a necessity to try to create as many jobs as possible to the capacity of nurses or intelligence agencies, um, typewriters, secretaries, uh, you name it. And I believe it was even General MacArthur who said that his most dedicated soldiers were members of the WAC, and that if he had the same mentality in his male soldiers as he did in the female WAC soldiers, that the war would have been fought a lot faster and quicker. So a little shout out to, uh, to the women who participated in that. Continuing on, you have the Bronze Star at the very top and a couple of patches from the 1st Infantry Division in the 82nd Airborne. Going down along the side, you have a variety of rings that were made by American soldiers or made in areas of or campaigns. For example, a couple of them are in the Philippine Islands. Some of them are from North Africa. One of them is from Sicily. And it says uh, 1943. Um, in front of that display, you have a typical mesk uh, uh, pan, um, fork, knife, and spoon, as well as plate that U.S. soldiers would use. Uh, that would go in the back section of their haversack. You'll see a, uh, an example of it a little bit further down from the table. Uh, next to that, you have a map. You can go ahead and pick up the map at this point. The map has different red and green lines on it. This is a map of the Pacific. Maps like this were oftentimes sewn in uh, inside of um, flight crews jackets, just in case the airplane would go down in the water or on an island somewhere that you would have it on your person. Uh, notice the material. It is of silk. Um, this would be, of course, if it ended up in water, it wouldn't be destroyed. And also, it would be a little bit more silent than having to fold and unfold a paper uh, equivalent of a, of a map. And that might give off uh, a certain noise and give away your location. So the, the green and the red stripes are interesting. And those are the, the tides in the winter and in the summer times. So if you go down, if it's June, 1944 and you're shot down and you're in open water then you're going to look at the green and that'll give you an idea of where potentially you might be floating towards or what direction and that might give you also an idea of what islands are in that area if there are islands and then the same thing for the red in the winter time period uh, next to that you have a couple of stars it says serving overseas those are two stars meaning that the family had two individuals or two boys in this case um, that were fighting overseas. If you notice in the window next to the American flag, there's one that has a blue star. That would denote one a child or one person from your family fighting overseas. But where the window one has a blue star, please notice that these are silver stars. The silver star means that both of these boys have gone missing in action. If they had been gold, then it would be that they were killed in action. Next to that, you have a little sham, uh, pillow sham from uh, Fort Bragg. And it says, remember Pearl Harbor. Uh, these were done usually as, as in, for propaganda to get people behind the, uh, the war effort. 
um, as well if you had a child that was at Fort Bragg or go, doing their military military training there, you can have that kind of as a, a memento. Um, behind that, uh, a little bit off to the right-hand side, you have two full medals. The first one is the Army Distinguished Service Cross. That is the second highest medal beyond the Medal of Honor. Um, that is for soldiers who have displayed a sense of heroism uh, beyond the call of duty. And then next to that is a full issued um, Purple Heart. And that is to a, for a soldier named Truman Watson. Truman Watson was born in Kentucky, eventually joined the Army in the 1940s. In 1942, he served in North Africa, eventually participated in the invasion of Sicily and the invasion of Italy. And outside of Salerno, he was wounded. Um, he could not continue fighting the war, so he came back here to the United States and was then issued the Purple Heart. Next to both of those medals, I think is one of the most intriguing, one of the things that I've, I like most about my collection, and one of the items that I think is, is amazing. This is an actual piece of shrapnel from Pearl Harbor. If you notice in the middle, it says a man's name, George Stannis. Uh, George Stannis Jr. was a fellow student of mine at Cal State Fullerton. He was in his 50s when we graduated together with our master's in history. And his father was at Pearl Harbor when the bombing took place. He was next to the Arizona when it exploded. And as the Arizona exploded, shrapnel from all over the place went into buildings and went into trees and went in even to people who were standing nearby. Um, he went on, George did, to fight in, in the battle. And when in the cleaning effort, American soldiers started picking up pieces here and there, he took out a piece of what is supposed to be the Arizona that was in a tree, a piece of shrapnel, wrapped it up in that napkin and then wrote um, shrapnel from Honolulu on December 7th, 1941, and then sent it to his parents back who were living in, uh, in Orange County at the time. Amazing little piece of history. Continuing on, we have two uniforms right, um, on opposite sides of a little globe, as well as a little container of different um, shirts and different jackets from the time period, please feel free to pull out any of those items. There's a couple of M43s, uh, much more of the design you're going to see in the Korean conflict as well as in Vietnam that's different from the M41 that you'll see in, in front of you in just a moment. But let's start off with the soldier that's on our right-hand side. That is from the Royal Signal Corps of the British Army. Um, he's part of what is known as the Desert Rats, who fought against Rommel's troops um, in North Africa. But this would be the European campaign equivalent. So they wouldn't be wearing this full wool uniform in North Africa. Surely it'd be way too hot. The British were wearing shorts at that point in North Africa. This is something that they're going to be wearing during the European campaign eventually a little bit later in 1944 and 1945. Um, full, uh, complete full uniform. This man is a machine gunner. You can tell by the um, ammo packs that he has on the front. He has his canteen as well as his shovel and his pike behind him and his um, uh, helmet at the very top. And same thing here. The helmet, if you'd like to take it down, try it on. Take a look at it. Absolutely fine. Continuing on is what the Americans would have very early on in the war. Um, this American soldier has an M41 on, which is kind of a kind of a glorified it's kind of a glorified windbreaker, really. It's not very conducive or useful uh, for a war effort. It just has a couple of pockets beyond pockets for your hands. There's no place to store items like you'll see eventually in the M43s if you pull them out of the, uh, the basket underneath. 
Um, but this is what an American soldier would look like uh, up, you know, early on in the conflict in 1942, all the way through to the D-Day invasions in 1944. So in North Africa, this is what American soldiers would uh, be wearing. He has his herringbone twill, um, cotton underneath his uh, his windbreaker, and then he has his ammunition belt and his haversack then attached to him and the little hanging area off to the soldier's right hand side that is his container of his medical equipment um, so if you open that up you can see a, a little medical kit that was issued to soldiers uh, at the soldier's feet um, right in front of his double double buckle uh, shoes you have the m1 which is the helmet if you'd like to pick that up and check it out um, please keep it intact. It actually has two parts. It has a liner on the inside and then the metal case on the outside. But please feel free to pick it up, try it on, take a look at it. If we continue on to your left-hand side, you're going to notice two uniforms uh, hanging on some PVC pipes here. Uh, the first one on the right-hand side, this is an American Naval uniform. Uh, the American Navy wore white uniforms if they were at home and then the really dark blue, almost black uniforms when they were overseas. So you usually see pictures of the um, uh, shipmen, uh, the, of the Navy uh, personnel in their dark uniforms, if you're looking at pictures of the, uh, the Second World War. Next to that sailor, we have a uniform from the Canadian Royal Air Force. Remember that Canada was part of the British Empire. And so soldiers and pilots from Canada would come over and participate in the conflict um, he has a Royal Air Force uh, flag over his uh, shoulder. If you'd like to take it down and take a look at it, it has a 1940 stamp, so it's appropriate of the, uh, the time period. And just another little fun fact, the Royal Air Force uniform, that's exactly what the, the pilots and the personnel wore when they were up in the airplanes. They would wear that uniform. There was an expectation, this is also true for American soldiers, that you were to stay cleanly shaven throughout the war, and your appearance was appearance was supposed to be at the utmost. Well, the British pilots and British airmen went to war with their suits on. Then they might put their flight jackets on on top. But when they crashed, when they were at sea, or they hit land, or they came down, they looked quite, uh, you know, quite awesome with their uniforms, quite spiffy with their uniforms. Next to the RAF uniform, we have a German uniform made up of some originals and some uh, replicas, starting at the bottom, the guiders the, and the pants, and then even the shirt are replicas, including the potato smasher uh, grenade that's uh, attached to the belt. Of course, potato smasher, because anything that it hit would make into mashed potatoes, let's say. Um, but everything else is of the, the time period, including the... Um, the ammunition pouches, the brown pouches in the front, the gas container, um, gas mask container in the back, the shovel, as well as the bread bag, just like you saw in the bread bag for the Japanese soldier. The German soldier has one um, very common of the time period, even World War I, to have a bread bag. And on the back is known as the pony pack. The pony pack was also used in World War I and even World War II for soldiers um, general soldiers, but mostly for soldiers who were mountain soldiers. It is made of horse hair, hence the pony pack, but it's of 1936. And then you have the Zeltbahn, which is the poncho that the soldier has on. That poncho was a quarter tent. So you could use it if you had four soldiers. You can have, you can actually make a full tent 
if you had a quarter tent, you and another soldier together can make a half tent enough for two people to, uh, to sleep in. And if you weren't using it or having it rolled up and attached to the back of your backpack, then you could eventually use it as a poncho. It had a slit where your head would go through, as you see here, and you could wear it as a poncho. Now, it might look pretty long, but if you notice that there are plenty of areas to uh, button, so you could use them in different ways. If you didn't like the poncho to hang low, you could eventually put, button it up towards your waist to get it off of your, uh, your legs. Um, the helmet as well um, is of the time period, and it has a camouflage cap on top of it. And if we continue further down towards the left, uh, kind of concluding our little mini tour here, uh, we have four uniforms for women who were in the armed forces in some capacity or another. Uh, the, the taller individual, that is a nurse's uniform. It is made of herringbone twill or HBT. Uh, it's a cotton uniform. This was what a lot of women wore if they were near the front line. So if they were a nurse, they were participating in the war effort and they were close to the front lines, this is what they would have on. Next to that is more of an office uniform for a member of the WAC, of the Women's Auxiliary Corps. So they might be a typist or a secretary, and that's the common uniform that they would wear all the way down to the socks and the boots that uh, this mannequin has on. Next to that, we have a woman who is in a nurse's uniform. This, of course, would not be in the front line. You wouldn't see a nurse dressed in white with her blue mantle on top of her shoulders. Uh, this would be inside of a hospital farther, much farther away from, um, from any action that would be seen, uh, for example, in the, the first uh, uniform in which the, the young lady is wearing the, the fatigue green color. Uh, next to that is a Class A uniform for also another member of the Women's Auxiliary Corps. Um, she is a corporal from the two strikes of she uh, the chevrons on her, uh, her arm. And then next to her is the American Class A uniform. So Americans had three classes, Class A, Class B, and Class C. Class A was your parade uniform, what you wore that showed off the different medals. And if you notice, there's a variety of the same medals that you saw a moment ago on the American table, including the Purple Heart or the Bronze Star. Um, this, this one is from the 2nd Infantry Division called the Indian Head Division. You can see that as it's uh, the patches on the left hand uh, or left uh, shoulder. Um, underneath the symbol or the chevrons that denote that this guy was a staff sergeant are going to be four hash marks. Uh, each uh, hash mark in yellow denotes six months of military service. So this soldier was in the army for at least a total of two years. On the other arm at the bottom, there is a unit uh, patch. Um, his unit did something that was of merit that got them the patch. If there's a number like a one or a two, that means that they had a second or a, a first or a, or a second or a third uh, patch that was issued to them. And then, of course, you have the cap on as well. If you'd like to take it down and take a look at that, uh, you can. Um, and that concludes our little mini tour of uh, the military that I have uh, displayed here. If you have uh, any questions, please feel free to ask. If you know anybody else who you think would really enjoy coming in and checking it out, uh, please let them know. All right. Have a good rest of your day.